Well, good morning again. Guys, in just a moment, we're going to get to John chapter 4. If you have a Bible and you want to turn to verse 22 and prepare for our thoughts here. Those of you just joining us, we are walking through some a clarifying moment at the beginning of 2023 over a, a word, a subject that is intended to be dominant in our lives. It is intended to be the defining characteristic of our existence. It's the word worship. It sits at the center of everything we are and all that God's called us to be. And so we've been just walking through some different elements of worship. The title of this message, Worship is Defined. And I'm going to take a slight risk here by engaging the thought that you and I are living in a time in which definitions have shifted more in our lifetime than probably any other human beings on the earth could have ever said. That's no risk. Well, the next part's the risk, Peter. Uh, So whether you're aware of it or not, I think you are aware of it. And the category I'm going to land in here, and I'm only using this, the message is not about what I'm about to say. The message is about we as human beings living in this hour have a propensity to feel the freedom to define things the way we want. And we feel validated in that. And we feel like anybody who doesn't support that idea, there's something wrong with them. You, you can't be a, a Christian submitted to God and have that posture. We are creatures created by a God. We are not the originators. There's no original ideas with us. We do not own the copyrights on anything. We, we rent here. We don't own the planet. We don't own the air we breathe. Right? It all belongs to God. And the God who created everything, he supplied definitions for many, many things. Many, many things. And we need to pay attention to those definitions because now we're talking about a topic of worship. And I'm going to make one point on the way to making this point. If the point I'm about to make is possible that in our world, things like what we're about to see described here can be redefined. Don't any of us as human beings think for a moment that we're not capable of redefining worship? Don't any of us think that, that we have bought into the right definition of worship? We are people who are capable of redefining things. That was true for Adam and Eve. It's true for us today. But in our lifetime, things have shifted so dramatically in particular categories that it now feels as though everything, it, the definition for everything is up to me. That's a hard thing to live with if you have to live with me. It's a hard thing to live with if God is going to interact with me. Because I may be redefining things in ways that God's not okay with. And I may be blowing that off completely because everybody around me seems to keep applauding me every time I say I have the right to believe this. I have the right to define this this way. Everybody keeps applauding me. And then when I hear people speaking about frowning upon that, they get ganged up on and beat up in public squares. So, all right, so I'm going to pick on this one area. And and I shouldn't feel awkward for this because quite honestly, every day of your life, Every day of your life, the world you live in speaks to you about sex and sexuality. Every day of your life. Subtly and loudly, it speaks. So I want to make sure that what you hear from the kingdom of God speaks as well. I want to make sure your children hear things that make them walk out of here and walk into a classroom, walk into a school presentation, and listen to something and go, That's not what Pastor Keith said. I hope your children hear that. I hope they feel awkward about hearing things that have a discrepancy between them. Because at some point, you are being bombarded 
with new definitions in the categories of sex and sexuality. Carl Truman wrote a book a couple of years ago called The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self. He said this in the beginning of his book. He said, the origins of this book lie in my curiosity about how and why a particular statement has come to be regarded as coherent and meaningful. Quote, I am a woman trapped in a man's body. Today, it is a sentence that many in our society regard as not only meaningful, but so significant that to deny it or question it in some way is to reveal oneself as stupid, immoral, or subject to yet another irrational phobia. And yet that sentence carries with it a world of metaphysical assumptions. It touches on the connection between the mind and the body. Given the priority it grants to inner conviction over biological reality. It separates gender from sex, given that it drives a wedge between chromosomes and how society defines being a man or a woman, right? Don't get lost in the fancy language of Mr. Truman. There is a signal, there is a definition being given that's, that's come up and in more and more weight is now given to it. Throughout the history of man, your biology was defining you. Your chromosomes, if you're a man, you have a certain chromosome set. If you're a woman, you have another chromosome set. Your chromosomes were defining your sexuality. Then there came a day where those things now are defined by how you feel and by what culture supports. So biology and chromosomes are being kicked to the curb. Let me see if I lost myself here. To move from the commonplace thinking of my grandfather's world to that of today demands a host of key shifts in popular beliefs in these and other areas. It is the story of those shifts, or perhaps better, of the background to those shifts that I seek to address in subsequent chapters. So, so the first thing that's in every one of us outside of this topic is you and I live in a world where defining things has shifted. And the prerogative to, to define things has shifted as well. And even though you and I might not find ourselves on one side of this sexual debate or another, you and I are being affected by a world that has given us permission to define things as we will. And that's my big concern. Truman goes on and says something else. He says, the use of pornography no longer carries the connotations of shame and social stigma it once did and has even come to be regarded as a normal part of mainstream culture. The sexual revolution does not simply represent a growth in routine transgression of traditional sexual codes or even a modest expansion of the boundaries of what is and is not acceptable sexual behavior. Listen, rather, it involves the abolition of such codes in their entirety. So this is not a, a message about sexuality. It's a message about the ingredients of those two things I just described. A world that accommodates, promotes, and makes it feel right and normal to shift things into new categories. To redefine things. And more than that, to abolish any sense of codes. To create a world that feels like there are no absolutes and no one should be telling you where things begin and where they end, what's inbounds, what's out of bounds, how you should and should not do something. I'm not trying to talk about sexuality this morning. I'm trying to talk about that. Because once you start giving yourself permission as a creature to redefine things, at some point you'll redefine a lot. And that's happening in our world, right? I put in your outline, if we believe that it's our prerogative to deny gender and define our own identity, it's not hard to believe that we might redefine or self-define lots of things. Like, what does it mean to be human? What 
What's acceptable moral behavior? What is a Christian? What is God really like? Can you imagine? Anybody cluing in that, oh, Keith, humanity has been redefining God for a long time, hasn't he? That's just a fact. So if we're redefining those things, then we land on this last question, which is at the center of what we started the year with. What is worship? What is worship? Might it be that, okay, for everybody who right now is going, yeah, I'm, I'm glad you're dancing on these political issues, buddy. Somebody needed to say something. All right, for every one of you who's doing that, uh, I want to I mess with your personal elements as well. Because personally, you may be redefining worship as well. Not politically, not the big structures and cultural elements. Personally, you could be redefining what worship is. So I just want to make one traffic in two areas today. Acceptable worship and unacceptable worship. And I just want us to see that from the scriptures. This is not a Keith Collins presentation. I'm not trying to stand up here and say, in my opinion, there's acceptable worship, there's unacceptable worship. When we read the Bible, there is acceptable worship and there's unacceptable worship. And knowing that helps us get to a place where we actually worship God. Remember this conversation? I won't revisit the whole thing, but Jesus meets a Samaritan woman at a well and has a conversation with her. Could have been somebody else. He could have had a similar conversation with them, but it's her. And and this is where we'll just focus today. John 4, verse 22. Jesus speaks to this woman and says, you, you worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming, and is now here, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. So Jesus interacts, and he just makes some points here that let's put these words in his mouth because they did come from him. So he's interacting with a person who she has an approach to worship. That's the one thing you got to be aware of. She already has some ideas about worshiping God. And quite honestly, in all the examples I'm going to give today, a lot of what they're doing is okay. A lot of it's right on. She's not having a conversation with Jesus from a reference point of she worships the moon god. Uh, She worships some creature on a totem pole. That's not her story. She's trying to relate to the one true God. She has an idea that's in the neighborhood of the God that Jesus is going to be describing. But he's able to take a person who's in that posture and say, you worship ignorantly. You, you're doing some stuff under the umbrella of worship, but you don't know what you're doing. C- can you hear Jesus say that to, to someone? In our world, we don't like to hear anybody tell anybody that you don't know what you're doing. But Jesus can have this conversation with this woman. And so there has to be an ability for us to absorb. If you met with Jesus and he talked to you about your life, he might sound like this. He could sit down with your form of worship and say, you don't know what you're doing. What if Jesus had walked up to that well and there was a Muslim there? And the Muslim was sincere. This is what I practice. This is what I do. This is the life I'm living. What would Jesus have sounded like to him? Would would Jesus have affirmed him? He didn't affirm the Samaritan woman. He says, "You, you, you don't know what you worship. And you, you don't know the God that you're worshiping. Would, would Jesus turn to the Muslim and say something different? Oh, but, but you do. Or might Jesus point to his beliefs and say, you, you don't understand the God that you're seeking to relate to. You approach him in a way that is not going to work. And then he says something very exclusive here. You worship what you don't know. We worship what we know. For salvation is from the Jews. Now, don't read past that too quickly. 
Because he's, he's adjusting this woman. And he's making a very exclusive statement. Salvation is from the Jews. Well, what if she believes it's from somewhere else? Does that get validated or does that get offended? What if Jesus looks out at all the variety of beliefs that are out there and he stares at all of them? Everybody could come to this well, one after another. You could come from the Middle East. You could come from the Far East. You could come wherever with your religious beliefs and Jesus would tell you the same thing. Salvation is from the Jews. It's from nowhere else. Now, if you live in the world of religion, that, that, sounds, that sounds offensive. It sounds too close-minded. Until you begin to understand that there's something about salvation. It's if you don't understand something about salvation. If you think salvation is just being aware that there's a higher power. And maybe having some moral boundaries and living your life under a set of principles. If that's what you think salvation is, then I can tell you this. Salvation is not just from the Jews. Then There's lots of places you can get that. And so I, I, in the last couple of weeks, I've had conversations um, with folks from, from India who see spirituality quite differently. And I was in an Uber ride with a man named Muhammad, so I kind of assumed where he was coming from. And so we had a conversation about Jesus and Islam. And what's interesting is, you know, the Indian folks uh, had a perspective that said, hey, I, you know, I, I, got no, I got no beef with Jesus. Uh, and then that went on to be, I got no beef with Jesus or, or Krishna or this or that. It's like, we're all... Serving the same God. We're all relating to the same God. What if Jesus had met him at the well that day? Would Jesus have said, yeah, yeah, that's true. Or would he have said, you don't know the God you're trying to relate to. Salvation is from the Jews only. Or to talk to a Muslim and to hear him trying to understand. He couldn't, he couldn't understand how, he couldn't understand the Trinity first, so we talked about that for a while. And then he couldn't understand how, if, if Jesus was somebody great, how did he come to earth and get beat up by men? He couldn't get that. So I'm explaining to him there's something unique. First, to understand, and I'll try to keep this brief, but uh, to understand that Jesus Christ is not a first and last name. This is not like Fred Smith, Jesus Christ. He is Jesus, the Christ, the Christ. And so if you understand that concept, you're beginning down the road of salvation. The Christ means there was one who was anointed by God. He is the anointed one. That's what the Christ means. So he wasn't just like, hey, there was a moment, you know, there was a moment where there was a, you know, a Jesus message and then a Krishna message and then a, a Muhammad message, right? Now, through history, from the moment that humanity fell into sin and the world was fallen, the Christ was on his way to redeem us. He was not on his way to teach us some principles that we could follow and live by. He was on his way to be the Christ. Which means he had a mission that was unique that no other world religion is trying to impart. He was on a mission to satisfy the righteous requirements of God. And so when I tell Muslim people that the problem with your version of Allah is he's too small. You know, no swords come out. And, I, you know, usually they're very kind in that moment. But it is puzzling, right? Because the problem is your God has a problem that's too easy to solve. You just need to be a better person. You need to take the, the teachings of Muhammad and, teach, uh, and just do your best to be devoted to them. But the problem is the God of the Bible, you couldn't get near him by doing that. On your best day on a hot streak, you have been doing an amazing job. You're the, nobody on earth compares to what a good person you are. And if you stepped into the presence of God, you would be fried in an instant and it would be over. So how do we get near God? Well, there needs to be a sacrifice 
where one who did live a perfect life takes the wrath and punishment of God away from you by taking it on himself. Oh, and that's what the Christ will do when he comes. So from the moment man existed back here in the Garden of Eden, it wasn't like all these other speakers, Moses and this guy and that guy, were all kind of like throwing out a little piece of the program and just reminding everybody, hey, everybody be on your best behavior because there's a God out there and he cares how you live. And the next guy comes along, he's got a similar message. Listen, that salvation is not just from the Jews. It's from your neighbor. It's from every religion that's ever existed. But the salvation that's only from the Jews is the one spoken of from the foundations of the world where the lamb was slain from the foundations of the world. One lamb, only one lamb. And he would be a Jewish lamb because God had the right as the creator to decide of all the races and people on earth, I'm going to choose this little group over here and I'm going to reveal my salvation through them. He did that. He could have chose somebody else. He could have chose Africans. He could have chose Asians. He could have chose whoever he wanted to. He chose them. And he sent the Messiah through them. And only through them. There's not another one. So when Jesus stands and says, salvation is through the Jews only, that's a rather exclusive statement, isn't it? Worship gets defined, doesn't it? Because worship is about approaching this God. It's about relating to him. It's about presenting to him our offerings and our affections and our delight, but you can't get near this God without the Christ. So there is only one way, right? It's defined by him. Let me run into these other words that Jesus introduces. He says, the hour is here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. So again, don't read the Bible too quickly. The true worshipers? So if there are true worshipers, then there are also false worshipers. So Jesus said that. So when we bump into the idea that there may be false worshipers, and maybe some of that false worships in some of us, does that make you offended? It might fix me. It might address something in me that's gone astray, that I had a bad idea that I've pulled into my life and I'm trying to use it to associate with God and it's, it's not right. It's false. And, and Jesus highlights something when he says, if you're going to come and worship God, it, it has to be in spirit and in truth. So I'm not going to go too far into the spirit thing. I'll mention Charles Spurgeon. I'll mention something about it in just a minute. But truth. So there is a concept called truth. There's something in our world that is truth and you need to know what it is. Otherwise you can't approach this God. You must worship him in spirit and in truth. So God's not up for public debate. He's not waiting for the town hall meeting to decide who he is and how to approach him. He's not available for that. He is a certain way. So God is defined and there is this thing called truth. Now, remember, we're going to get into something. We're going to go from worship to warfare here in a couple of weeks. Let me give you a little taste of where the warfare comes from. John chapter 8. So we're in John chapter 4. Just a few chapters later, Jesus is going to be speaking to a crowd, different crowd. He's not at a well with an individual now. Now he's speaking to a crowd, predominantly a Jewish crowd of people who have many right ideas about God, many right ideas about God. And he says this to them, you... Verse 44, you are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. All right, just stop for a second. What, what do you think the scene looks like that Jesus just walked up on, right? When we see stuff like that, we're thinking, oh my gosh, there's probably like a big pentagram on the ground with blood stains and a goat's head. And he's just interrupting this satanic ritual. And he walked up and he said, you are of your father, the devil. Is that what you think this looked like? Or did they look like somebody who sat next to you? In synagogue. So listen, it's not because you dress up in horns in some stupid pitchfork and think the devil has anything to do with the color red. Uh, It's not because of those things that you are of your father, the devil. It's because of what you believe in your heart. Listen to what he unpacks that. He says, let me just tell you that dude. He was a murderer from the beginning and he does not stands in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, not if, when, 
He speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. So what makes you related to the devil is having his beliefs in common with him. Having your heart to be in agreement with him. And can you imagine Jesus... Jesus doesn't teach a lot about the devil. The Bible doesn't teach a lot about the devil. So if you had this meeting with Jesus and he unpacked out of nowhere, hey, can I just tell you something about the devil for a second? Here, I'm just going to say two things. Would you hold on to those two? If all the things that could be said about the devil, Jesus said two things. He said, one, he was a murderer from the beginning. He, he introduced death to the entire human race. He's a murderer. Secondly, there's no truth in him. That's the only two things you want to say, Jesus? And if it is, how important is this truth thing? There's no truth in him. No truth in him. So a truth must be a big deal. Isn't it amazing, though? You and I live in a moment in a world that's not all that interested in truth. It's interested in opinions. It's interested in popularity. It's interested in what's trending. But the Bible says, no, from the beginning, the dude that brought everything down, he murdered everybody by misrepresenting God's truth. There's no truth in him. Oh, and worse than that, he's a liar and he's the father of lies. So he's going around, he's kind of, you know, giving birth to, if you will, lie after lie after lie after lie that dots the landscape of our world. Lies are everywhere. He's busy. He's a busy father giving birth to lie after lie after lie. So one of the things, uh, I, you know, started this with a little bit of a controversial point, but one of the things I, I can't get away from is the thought that are you aware every day of your life you interact with lies? Every day lies are told to you and they don't come packaged. Like it's not like an Amazon delivery with a big stamp across the top of it says lies. Hey honey, would you unpack the lies today? Yeah, let's see. Well, this is a lie and that's a lie. They don't come like that, do they? They come like they're the truth. They come with reinforcements. Everybody believes this. Everybody says this. So it's a little harder to pick them out. But you and I are called to be discerning. Jesus said, hey, you got an enemy. You're in a war. He's a murderer and he's a liar. Pay attention to the lies. So question for all of us. When you stare into your phone, when you open an app, when you listen to a podcast, when you attend church, when you are influenced by somebody on TikTok, Do you have one eye that looks for truth and the other eye looks for a lie? Is that how you look at this stuff? Or are you just kind of just breathing it in? Just breathe in the air, man. Just breathe in the air. I don't even stop to think, where does this come from? Does this bear witness with the truth? Is this about the truth? Is this a lie? Is this a blatant, God-hating lie that I'm interacting with right now? Is that what we're doing? Because we have an audience with the devil more now than we have ever had in the history of man. Ideas on the other side of the world used to take years to get to this side of the world. They're instant now. You can instantly view them. So you and I are interacting with some real trouble in this category. John Piper says, together the words spirit and truth mean the real worship comes from the spirit within which requires a rebirth by the Spirit, by the way, and is based on true views of God. So wherever we have false views of God, we cannot be worshiping him. We might be thinking about a God who slightly resembles our God, but we can't be worshiping him because we need true views of God to worship him. Remember our passage in Hebrews blatantly uses this concept? Hebrews chapter 12, we'll come back and visit that verse some more. It says, therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe. 
For our God is a consuming fire. Can you hold on that word consuming just for a minute? Let us offer to God acceptable worship. So when I read my Bible, does the Bible tell us that all forms of worship are acceptable? No. And if I want to have a real relationship, which I do, with the real living God, then I don't want to do it in an unacceptable way to him. Not, but it's acceptable to me. Well, that doesn't matter. What's acceptable to him needs to displace what's acceptable. I'm the creature. I don't get to make up the rules and impose them upon God. The creator gets to impose his views on me. So before we keep this on the outside of us, let, let, let this travel to the inside of every one of us who call ourselves Christians. Right? Charles Spurgeon, I'm going to let Charles do the heavy lifting today. Charles speaks about the inside of us in terms of genuine worship. Please don't escape this thought from Mr. Spurgeon if it needs to find a residence in our hearts. He says, see then, brethren, putting the whole three together, the, the worship under the Christian dispensation, which God ordains and which he accepts through Jesus Christ, is a worship distinguished by an inward vitality from the outward worship of the carnal mind. It is the worship of a child towards a father, feeling within himself. Do not think you are worshiping if your affections and your heart is not inclined toward God. Feeling within himself a kinship with the divine. It is a worship wrought in us by God, the Holy Spirit. Because the Father has sought us out and taught us how to worship him. It is worship which is not outward, but of the inner man and occupies not hand, eye, and foot, but heart and soul and spirit. And it is a worship which is not professional and formal, but real, hearty, earnest, and so acceptable before God, says our friend Mr. Spurgeon. So let me race through some things here. Buckle up because this could give you whiplash and try to get through this quickly. But from the very beginning, and there are too many sites that we, we would be here literally for hours to talk about. How many times does God in the Bible point out that the way man is approaching him in worship is unacceptable? All right, so if you can't immediately start thinking, start thinking right now. Can you, can you think of how many times that is? If, if nothing comes to mind, it might be telling you we don't like to read the bad news part of the Bible, only the good news part. Right, so you don't get far into Scripture. You get to all the way into, ready for this, Genesis chapter 4. Right? Now, if you remember where that is, you get Genesis 1 and 2 is creation. Genesis 3 is the fall. And here we are in Genesis 4. The first recorded incident, first recorded incident of a ceremony of worship before God. First time, and it gets fumbled. Genesis 4, verse 2. Now, Abel was a keeper of sheep, and Cain, a worker of the ground. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering, this is worship, of the fruit of the ground. And Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. So Cain was very angry and his face fell. I wish I wasn't going to give you this many examples because I would just love to hang out with this moment for a little bit. But do you see here, there is a God in heaven who is okay with some approach and not okay with others. Immediately, the first recorded ceremony of worship, God wastes no time in pointing out, do not approach me that way. Do approach me that way. What? Why does this matter? One, it doesn't matter whether I understand why it matters. There could be something in the nature of God that's so far above my pay grade 
that I just don't get it and it just needs to be okay. But I think when I take the rest of scripture into account and the God of the universe wanted to make one thing critically clear so that none of us would be without excuse is from the moment man fell in Genesis chapter three, there was this one who was to be slain from the foundations of the world. He was the lamb slain from the foundations of the world. Salvation will involve the Christ. To be right with God, an innocent life is going to be required in the place of the guilty. That is critical. No one approaches God without that being fulfilled. So when Abel brings a member of the herd with him with a life in it and blood in it and sacrifices that animal, that points to the Christ. When this guy gathers some flowers and pulls a couple of avocados off of a tree and presents them to God, it doesn't make the same point. This one is just human ingenuity, human effort. Anybody here doubt whether Cain was sincere? Anybody, he's thinking that, you know, I ain't bringing God that, bring him some flowers and he can be happy with that. Anybody think that's what he did? Or did he actually go out and find the best he could get from his world, from his efforts, his own rightness and goodness, and come and present that before God? And God said, no. Because that does not foreshadow the only thing that will save you. And what this one did does. Right, so from the beginning... God makes clear there's a right way to worship me and there's not a right way to worship me. Right, so we get to Exodus chapter 32. Right, I'm skipping some things, but this significant event here, let me read a few verses. Here's where we are in the story. God has rescued the people of Israel out of Egypt and their bondage, and he's brought them to an appointment with him at Mount Sinai. And uh, Moses is interacting with the people on behalf of God, but he's gone up to visit with God. So he's up on the mountain and he delays. And now they're sitting at the foot of this mountain and it's been a while since they've heard anything. That's where we are. Exodus 32 verse one. When the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves together to Aaron and said to him, up, make us gods who will go before us. As for this Moses... The man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. So Aaron said to them, take off all the rings of gold. Just think with me, where does he get this idea from? Why gold? Why not bring me some wood, bring me some paper? No, no, no. Give me some gold that are in the ears of your wives, your sons, your daughters, and bring them to me. So all the people took off the rings of gold that were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. And he received the gold from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool and made a golden calf. Where'd you get that idea, Aaron? And they said, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it. Where'd you get that idea? And Aaron made a proclamation. Listen carefully to the proclamation. Tomorrow shall be a feast To the bull god. No. Tomorrow shall be a feast to Yahweh, Jehovah, the Lord. We're going to approach the one true God this way. So make sure you catch that. This is not them attempting to worship a false god. This is them attempting to worship the true God in a false way. And they rose up early the next day and went to church. I'm sorry, it doesn't say that, but that's kind of what a lot of people do, right? And offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. Then in verse 9, this is God's reaction to this moment. And the Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people, and behold, it is a stiff-necked people. Now, therefore, let me alone that my wrath may burn hot against them, and I may consume them in order that I may make a greater, a great nation of you, that I may consume them. You remember that word from Hebrews 12? You know, the the setting of Hebrews 12 is Mount Sinai. 
so that when the writer of Hebrews in the New Testament introduces everybody today to the God who is over both the Old Testament and the New Testament, he doesn't say, for God used to be a consuming fire, does he? He references God's appearance at Mount Sinai and says, that God is still God. Let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe because God is, still is, a consuming fire. That's how he revealed himself to them. Now listen, let's, let's be a little bit sympathetic toward these guys. They've been let out into the wilderness. They have no idea where they're going. They're not prepared to stay long. They, they are at the foot of a mountain and the guy who's got the game plan is gone. He could have had a heart attack. He could be dead on the side of the mountain. So they're freaking out a little bit. How are we going to feed everybody? We've got all these people. How are we going to feed them? Uh, what if there's enemies around here? And they, we didn't bring weapons. We're not ready to defend ourselves. So they're feeling vulnerable. How many of you guys know that when you get to a moment where your life turns you inside out and upside down, it's moments like that where you might invent your own God who shows up in particular ways for that moment appropriately to help you out. Charles Spurgeon says, do not think that when they set up the calf, they meant to worship the calf instead of Jehovah. That would be a slander upon them. They worshiped Jehovah through the calf. That was their plea for they said, tomorrow is a feast unto Jehovah. They thought to represent Jehovah by a bull. They changed their glory into the similitude of an ox that eateth grass. Though severely rebuked, it was the constant sin of Israel to desire to worship God under the favorite Egyptian emblem of the bull. They had spent 430 years being discipled by Egypt. And they take their first few steps with God and they want to use all those ideas that they learned from Egypt. I have a hard time personally, humbly, looking at those Egyptians and saying, what a bunch of idiots. Because I'm an American. I use a lot of American ideas to figure out how to do life and probably how to approach God as well. I've been living in this land and it's been telling me what to believe, how to believe my whole life. And it does a pretty good job of doing that. So all of us are sitting here today with polluted stuff inside of us that we're going to actually go before God and we're going to seek to worship him. Let's, let's not any of us think that we haven't taken some of the ideas around us and stuck them in our worship, right? Let me just give you, a, some of you guys don't, Pay attention to this kind of stuff. But you've been in the body of Christ long enough to where you can see this. Right, so there was a point in the 1980s, 1990s, that leaders in the church decided, you know what? You know what's a priority? The church needs to reach the loss better than it's doing. The church needs to not just be so in love with itself and the community of those who are saved. It needs to be concerned about lost people. Right, that's true. So then what it did was it reached into Egypt and borrowed every idea it could figure out how to find was, how do, you, how do you gather people? How do you appeal to people? How do you connect with people? And next thing you know, the church writings for leaders is flooded with executive ideas, ideas that were borrowed from corporations and how they were led, successful campaigns. This company went from this to that. This is how they did it. This is how their consumer base grew. Well, quite honestly, the church borrowed all those ideas and brought them into the church because it looked like they worked. That's kind of what these guys were doing. It looked like when Egypt would worship these false gods and then they'd all get in their chariots and ride off, they'd beat the tar out of somebody and come back and they'd be like, whoo, the bull, baby, the bull, yeah. So they're thinking, hey, there's something to this bull thing. Uh, and I know we're following Jehovah now, but still there's something here. Let's pull that in. That, that, that works, that works. Okay, well, you and I now are living in the day when most, I won't say most churches, many churches are not designed for the worship of God. They're designed to appeal to customers. What they say, what they don't say, what they feature, the way in which they engage people is trying to create a conversation and connection point 
with somebody who's far away from God. And when you start to do that, that, that can sound noble, and there should be a dimension of our life that looks just like that. But when you do that, you will move farther and farther away from the things that God holds with a passion and begin more and more to identify the things that people hold with a passion. And your church will live in this neighborhood instead of that one. And I, I think that technique, it was successful at gathering a crowd. I don't believe it was successful at gathering worshipers. Worshippers, those who live reverentially toward God with awe and deep affection and valuing and treasuring and honoring toward this God. I don't think that approach has been successful at gathering worshipers. It feels like today's church world is a little bit more like a corporation. Consumers and customers and Church staffs exist to do customer service. There's a complaint department that why don't we have this and this doesn't go this way and this person did that. What are you going to do? Like, uh, you, you want a refund? What do you want to talk to the complaint department? Usually, I mean, somebody did ask me that the other day. I send them to Pete when it's a complaint. It's a complaint department's right down the hall from me. Um, the sense that, that you and I are gathered on a mission before a holy, great God. Together, we humbly stand on ground that shakes and trembles in the presence of this God. Listen, if all I'm going to do when we gather here on a Sunday morning is talk about things that appeal to you who have lived in Egypt all these years, who have been taught Egyptian ways to get fulfillment, to get protection, to get life, and I've got I've to start always and live within arm's reach of Egypt to, to get an audience. I may never talk about this God. And that's what's happening in a lot of churches. Who he is doesn't get described a whole lot. Now listen, our problem is not just with the American Egyptian element. You and I, within this room, there are at least a dozen personality types. You ever thought you're going to reinvent God in the likeness of your personality? Quite honestly, I wish I had more time. Quite honestly, this is more of an issue than living in Egypt. You are a certain way. Your personality is a certain way. You want God to be just like you. right? You ever, so there are hammer Christians among us. You know what a hammer Christian is? Christian who's like a hammer. Every issue is a nail just waiting to be smashed. And so here's what you want the pulpit to sound like. Very narrow, very heavy, very oppressive, very down on, very corrective. Come on, man. This is about holiness of God. Preach it, brother. Preach it. Put my hammer away. You got your hammer out. I'm safe. That might be your personality. I tend to think you don't turn that on just in the Christian universe. And then there are pillow Christians who don't want ever to see a nail get hit by anything. They want everything to feel soft and gentle and kind and gracious. And whatever Jesus would have done, Keith, at that well, it would have been soft and gentle. Would not have been offensive. He would not have offended the Muslim. Oh, are you sure you're reading the Jesus I'm reading? Was Was he a pillow when he got around the Pharisees? He said things that had some teeth to it. But see, there's something about us that I get that because my personality is a certain way. So I want God to be like my personality, but he's not like your personality. He is like who he is. And he is loving beyond the charts. Your pillow is not nearly soft enough. And he is more righteous than anybody with a hammer in this room. But he's both of those things all at the same time. And that's the God we get to come to and worship. Uh, how to do this and quickly. All right. Bear with me. I need to make two more points and I'm not going to forfeit them. Malachi chapter one. All right. So we fast forwarded from Moses to Malachi. We're at the end of the Old Testament. We're going to jump to the New Testament before we quit. 
God speaks through the prophet to the people of God. And he says, a son honors his father. That's one of those good internal words. Honoring comes from the inside out. It's not a merely external thing. Because you can do the right stuff on the outside and not be honoring people on the inside. Right? A son honors his father and a servant his master. If then I am a father, where is my honor? And if I am a master, where is my fear? Says the Lord of hosts to you, O priests, who despise my name. But you say, how have we despised your name? By offering polluted food upon my altar. But you say, how have we polluted you? By saying that the Lord's table may be despised. When you offer blind animals and sacrifice, is that not evil? And when you offer those that are lame or sick, is that not evil? Present that to your governor. Will he accept you and show you favor, says the Lord of hosts? And now entreat the favor of God that he may be gracious to us. With such a gift from your hand, will he show favor to any of you, says the Lord of hosts? Oh, that there were one among you who would shut the doors, that you might not kindle fire on my altar in vain. I have no pleasure in you, says the Lord of hosts. And I will not accept an offering from your hand. For from the rising of the sun to its setting, my name will be great among the nations. And in every place, incense will be offered to my name in a pure offering. For my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts. So if you know anything about Malachi, what's going on in this moment? The doors are still open. People are still attending church. They're They're doing their religious activity on the outside. But their hearts are not engaged in a way that God is okay with. So in particular, in this phrase, he's going to bring up some other issues. He brings up the fact that, you know, I have defined for you worship as you are to bring before me the firstborn. You are to bring to me that which comes into your life and offer it to me. But you guys are going through the motions of offerings. But before you come, it's like you look into your herd and it's like, um, hey, we need to bring something today to, to God. Um, yeah, where's the one that was like half dead with the, walking on three legs with one eye? Yeah, that one. You've, have you seen that one? I think it's off in the brush somewhere. I think it's gone off to die. Well, before it dies, get it real quick. Let's bring it to God and let's offer that to him. There is this sense that God says, you just made a statement about my greatness when you did that. You took something that wasn't important to you and you offered that to me. I'm not all right with that. So, you know, you and I live in a cash society now, so we're not coming this morning to, to pick a member of the herd. But if we were, right, I would hope the heart before us would be like what he described. Hey, if you were having dinner with the governor and you were going to bring a meal and offer one of your goats, would you bring the disgusting main one? Or would you offer something impressive to him? Because he's important, right? That's, what, that's what's being described here by Malachi. Do you look into your life and find, hey, What's the most important things I have? I have a heart to honor God. It's not much, God. It's just so weak. But it's, it's what I have that's valuable to me. I give to you. So, so what happens when our offerings today are more like garage sale items and stuff hidden in the attic? Right? Hey, did you write a check? No, no. Uh, how much should we write? I don't know, how do you answer that question? How valuable is bringing something to God? Well, you know, I've already, uh, well, education was important. So we spent money over there and having a house was important. And then having a car was important. And, and this was important. And that was important. And that was important. There were all these important things. All the, the pretty animals are already spent on. And, and we don't want to give up any of those things. So what we bring to God then is just some kind of lame leftover. It's like, well, this is what I got left. Right, write something, do something. And God says, 
I, I wish you'd just shut the doors rather than doing something like that. Right. Does that God exist for us? Is it okay if we have a God who cares about how we approach him? Is that okay? Or is this making us feel bad? Anybody think Cain felt bad when God said, that's not okay? I mean, the Bible comes right and says the dude was red hot mad. So what if God makes us mad? What if God turns around and says, hey, that's not okay. And we're like, <laughs> how many of us have ever said this in our lives? If, if, you know, whatever the situation, if that's what God is like, I would never worship a God like that. In your anger, I would never worship a God like that. Can I just tell you, God did not change an ounce after Genesis chapter four because Cain was mad at him. And you and I may be like, this is ridiculous. I mean, God is this, God is that. And we get our back up like, like that's going to alter God. I am the Lord God, I change not. God is who he is. We offer worship to him because God is who he is. He's a consuming fire. He lets us approach him through that one, the Christ. You can come to me. I've provided a way for you to come to me. But when your hearts are far from me, I'm not okay with that. I'm not okay with the leftovers. And when you start giving God leftovers, here's the danger for us. Let me feature that for a second. When you and I start giving God the leftovers and the small pieces, I promise you God will become small and feel like a leftover himself. And then you're going to be walking down this road. Ah, you know, I just don't sense God. Just, you know, I don't know, man. I'm just doubting some things. You know, just God doesn't feel real to me because you stopped treating him like God a long time ago. You don't take any risks. You don't extend faith. Your affections aren't involved. This doesn't cost you anything. There's an approach to God that God gets to be the one who describes how we approach him. So maybe we're here today and it's like, hey, I don't have any sheep in the herd offering problems, but... Am I offering? This is a financial question for us. Do you offer to God something he's pleased to receive from you? Or are you giving him the leftovers from the herd after everything else that was really important to us got paid for? That's an issue for God and how we approach him. Right? One more thing. Seth, wherever you are, buddy, come on back up here. This is an issue, and I'm, I'm doing this under the weight of, I believe, the Holy Spirit from something Frank preached a few weeks ago. But I just want, it's an interesting illustration that God gets us to this point about five weeks after a message that Frank did on unity, on reconciliation, on our hearts being right toward one another. Right, so Matthew chapter 5, verse 22 says, Jesus says, but I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. So, if you are offering your gift at the altar, an act of worship, right? you are coming to approach God in an act of worship. So if you are offering your gift at the altar, if you are attending church today, if you are opening your Bible to read God's word, if you are praying from your heart, if you are singing these songs, whatever your offering of worship is, if you are offering your gift at the altar and there, remember that your brother has something against you. Leave your gift before the altar and go. First, be reconciled to your brother. Then come and offer your gift. All right, so listen carefully because it's not just the world that's reinventing things, is it? How many of us listened? Maybe we're convicted by a word that was spoken for us to take significant actions to stop what we were doing in the worship category and have a heart of reconciliation towards someone else. Can this make sense to you? The God of the universe in sending the Christ stepped into our mess and our offense, which is far worse than what anybody could have ever done to any of us. And he forgave us and reconciled us to himself. And some of us won't be reconciled to another human being. This is the disconnect. You really don't know part A 
if you won't do part B. You don't know it. Oh, no, I can repeat some of those things. I can share with you the doctrine of justification and the sacrifice of Christ. And my sins are forgiven. And I know I'm forgiven and I'm going to heaven. Ah, you know something in the neighborhood of it. But you don't know it. Because if you knew it, it would undo you and it would flow from your life onto others. You would be amazed that the God of eternity in all of his perfection has forgiven me and welcomed me. But you don't understand what that person did to me. If you want to extend that to others, the reality of your reconciliation to God becomes smaller and smaller and smaller. You stop singing about it. You stop being amazed at the grace of God. See, these expressions of worship, they matter. When you and I fail to worship God the way he's defined it, he becomes smaller and smaller and smaller. And you'll find yourself, I'm a Christian for 20 years, and yet you you are not attracted to him. You're not enamored with him. You're not affected by him. You're wondering if this stuff is really true. What happened? You redefined worship. You approach God the way you thought you should approach him. Rather than taking the risks, I can't afford to give. You can't afford not to. Because your heart will get small toward God. You don't know what that person did. Do you know what you did? Do you know what he did on your behalf? Is everybody just clear on a real simple point? I know it took a long time to make it. The God of the universe has defined how to approach him in worship. Does everybody get that? It's not up for grabs. We don't get to do it the way we want to do it. We get to listen carefully to the way he wants us to worship. And we have total access to him through the one, the Christ, to worship him wholeheartedly. Let's let's stand up together. people who gathered in a desert at your invitation their lives full of ideas about deities and power even your nearness to a man like Moses your introduction to him is take your shoes off you have no idea where you're standing You were gracious to that man to let him come that close. And he watched you do incredible things. And yet he still found himself saying, Lord, show me more of you. Show me your glory. And you let him see just a little bit. The Lord, the Lord God compassionate slow to anger abounding in loving kindness yet not allowing the unrighteous to go unpunished that's how you want to be introduced where we stand here today before that God you have not changed you are full of glory and wonder and amazement You are slow to anger. I am so grateful. You are abounding in loving kindness. Our lives are dripping with your favor. You are compassionate. You are compassionate to the person here who's struggling with issues of sexuality. You are compassionate toward them. 
and all at the same time you are righteous and there will not be a sin that escapes your righteous response of judgment oh Lord then who who could ever be right with you well there's this one coming he'll make you right with me you can't make yourself right but the lamb is coming the one the Christ he will come and when he comes he will take your place he will invite my wrath and my judgment on him and you will be forgiven and reconciled to me and given promises that you can't even imagine and inherit an eternity that you can't even begin to define. But you need to know salvation is only through this way. So I pray for every person here who wants to relate to you, God, that they would not be guilty of creating their own approach. Lord, there is no other approach. No one can come near to you. The ground is too holy. But for every person here will call upon Jesus and put their trust and faith in him, he will take you home. He will forgive them by his own life and shed blood. He will restore sweet connection to a father who loves and who will be near for all eternity. Father, for those of us here who have known you for quite some time, oh Lord, I I am concerned. I am seeking your conviction in my own life, Lord. In what ways have I redefined worship and made it suit what I want to be like or the things that make sense to me or what I prefer or what I absorbed from the world around me. Lord, am I, am I shocked? Am I disappointed? Am I angry with you about things that are righteous about you? As though I know enough to insult you because you don't agree with current ideas. God, am I here this morning songs that I sang like leftovers of something else where my affections have already gone. Lord, Lord, it's the beginning of this year. Lord, our hope and our desire is that worship will be ever deeper in our lives because, Lord, we can't afford to have you any farther from us. We need your nearness, God, now as much as ever. Our children need your nearness, Lord. We do not need a generation coming behind us that knows God from a great distance and seeks satisfaction everywhere else. Lord, you must be near to us. We cannot redefine you. So Lord, would you help us, Lord? Would you help us to entrust ourselves to the God revealed in this where we want to be those you're looking for? Father, you said you were looking for those who would worship you in spirit and in truth. Lord, in spirits that are inflamed by the Holy Spirit to be affectionate, delighting in, revering of, honoring, amazed by you and truth that is defined by you. Lord, make us to be that people. Lord, may, may it be no matter what the outcome is, the light of spirit and truth shines at Lakeview Christian Center for your glory that your presence may be among us and you may be worshipped. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Bless you guys. Bless you guys who are watching. Great to have you with us again this week. See y'all next week.